We have looked at food waste throughout the supply chain, how it can be reduced when food is shipped, sold in supermarkets and wasted by us all. But there is one piece that is missing. And per definition, it's supposedly not even part of the problem. The farm. The place where food is actually created. Any food wasted there is usually seen as just food loss. But as we have seen time and time again, fraud red to green, words matter. While waste seems to be caused by humans, loss sounds like it's just something that happens, something we can't really address. But another big theme of the food waste season is that everything is more interconnected than it seems. The place where food is wasted is not necessarily the cause for this waste. A little disclaimer in between, you may hear some jungle sounds in the background and that's not an audio file I put over this. I'm actually in the middle of the Mexican jungle right now in Tulum where I decided to spontaneously stay because I had a flight booked for yesterday back to Europe and then just everything that could possibly make me stay here made me stay here be it people circumstances opportunities so i spontaneously decided to move into the jungle <laughs> and this is definitely the most exotic place that i've ever recorded a podcast introduction so let's just say it's like nice background atmosphere <laughs> We always talk about how much waste is created by retailers, how much by farmers, how much by consumers. And ironically, when we worked on the season outline, that is also how we were structuring it. It is a very Western mindset to try to compartmentalize things. So today we take a look at the perspective of a farmer and the relationship between farmers, restaurants and wholesalers, the power dynamic and imbalance that leaves farmers standing on their field with good food that can't be harvested. You'll hear from Petty Gentry, a farmer and former chef. We are a two-acre farm and we have a community-supported agriculture program where we serve 130 families vegetables for summer and fall seasons here in New York State. Community-supported agriculture makes farmers independent by directly connecting them to us, the consumers. You buy shares off the farm in advance and get a box of vegetables and fruit each week for a certain period of time. And this addresses a major issue that leads to food waste on farms. The lack of predictability. You're hoping that the people that you serve are going to be busy and need to buy whatever you are producing in volume. And I've been stuck with produce before I went to the model that I'm in now, which is that community supported agriculture where people buy shares. Uh, one year in particular, I planted fava beans for this one restaurant because a year before I couldn't supply them with enough as in 100 to 150 pounds a week, which for a little two acre farm is a high volume. So I planted three times as much and they bought less than half than they bought the year before. And so I tilled them in. 
you were asking earlier, like it's, what do you do? Do you pay people to harvest it and then be have it and try to unload it? Or you just cut your losses and till the crop in and focus on other crops that have a better market or what have you, plant something else in its place for sale later in the season. That's a very hard decision to make. And the way we do things, it's all hand harvesting, hand sorting, and it's a lot of work. So yes, there are times when just harvesting exactly what you need and let the rest go. And I know that bigger farms also have suffered a lot recently with that. The pork industry really suffered with COVID and with China trade relations and They didn't have an outlet for all of these animals. And so they harvested them as a polite way of putting it and they couldn't sell them. So yeah, that's a tough model to live by. By current definitions, these fava beans and pigs would be food loss, but I call it waste because a lot of that is caused by human decision-making, not sheer bad luck. And trying to separate food loss and waste based on where it occurs, overlooks that the cause may be up or downstream the supply chain. Our guest, Patty, is also called the Picasso of vegetables and a very likable person as far as I can tell. There's actually a documentary about her called The Soul of a Farmer. You can rent it or buy it on Vimeo and it's heartwarming. A great look behind the scenes of a community-driven farm. A model that can be more sustainable for consumers, farmers and the environment. So I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Let's jump right in. This is Bread to Grain, the audiobook style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to season four on food waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. It seems pretty unfair because the wholesalers, the people further down the supply chain, they can just wiggle out of the situation. So if there's an insight, for example, with COVID, that people are just not buying as much as they used to. The weight of this change is mostly carried on the shoulders of farmers and not by the rest of the supply chain. I am aware that there is a lot of flexibility in how wholesalers oftentimes negotiate with farmers. But wow, the scale of that inequality, that's really problematic. Oh my God, it's it's horrible because it's like gambling, you know? You're going to go all in on these crops and then you may or may not be profitable. There are big farms in my area on Long Island, people that produce potatoes or cauliflower on a grand scale. And they do the same process year after year. This is how they were taught to plant their crops. And it's hard for them to change. I feel that there's a lot of fear there in letting go of one way of doing things and inviting in another way. And it's hard for me too to make the decision to shift the model to what I did, which is 
community-supported agriculture, I was primarily exclusively serving restaurants when I first started farming because I was a professional chef for 25 years before I became a farmer. And that was my first outlet. And I was afraid to do something different. And so when I first started the CSA, we only had 30 members. And then I kept serving restaurants. And little by little, as I proved to myself that this was a model that was viable and profitable, I've been serving less restaurants. And that's where things are are variable and shifting more towards this CSA. So we've gone from 30 members in a two-year period of time to 130 members. And I wonder if other farmers could start to serve locally too, even in a small way. I just feel that it's so economical. And then people are connected. It's not just a farm that's out there in the distance and people don't know what's going on. It really educates people and it makes them compassionate and value you and your product more. So maybe we can describe a little bit more the concept of people buying stocks. Uh, Share. So we charge about $45 a week for a 15 week period of time and we get paid up front and people know that they're taking a chance. They're taking a chance because we may or may not, as you said, because of the weather and things unforeseen like an infestation of bugs or disease, they might not get everything that we said we are going to plant. Maybe they won't have tomatoes. Maybe they won't have string beans and they're willing to take that chance. And they're very closely connected to what's happening at the farm. I mean, they come to the actual physical space to pick up their share and they walk down the center of the fields to the pickup area. So they see everything growing. And I send an email to all of our CSA members each week with what's happened at the farm, what they're getting and how to prepare it. So they're investing in us. And they are willing to take that chance. And it makes it very real. When I first started doing the CSA, as the soil was improving at the farm, I lost all of my eggplants. And they didn't get any. It's just how it was. And again, the beautiful thing about being diversified is they got a lot of something else, but they didn't get eggplants. And sometimes we've had trouble with tomatoes or string beans or whatever it is. And so that's a wonderful thing because it raises people's awareness to the value and the effort and the reality that you're not always going to get what you want. So it's a really wonderful model. To build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and connections. Check out our partner, Food Labs, an early stage investor and venture studio for startups. Food Labs was founded in 2016. The Berlin-based investor is one of Europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture, investing in exciting topics such as alt proteins, water supply, vertical farming, solutions for food waste and carbon reduction. You see, there is a big overlap. Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2015 in a sustainable and healthy way, Food Labs has supported over 30 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Formo, a cultured milk startup featured in one of our episodes for making real cheese without cows. Mushlabs making meat alternatives from fungi and gorillas designing the future of grocery shopping. Thanks to Food Labs for partnering with Red to Green. And now back to today's episode. And how did you shift from being a chef to becoming a farmer? I was very interested in how food was grown. 
when I was working in the restaurant business, organic local food was very expensive. And a lot of restaurants didn't want to make a commitment financially to using it. So I became very curious as to why it was more expensive, how it was grown. And so that led me into farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, in my research, I found that we tend to drive down prices for food to a point at which it sometimes doesn't make sense for farmers to actually pay the labor to even take the beautifully perfect food off the fields. Yes, that's very true. That's a vicious cycle. People pay nothing for food, and then the people that produce the food can't pay their laborers, and round and round we go. One wonderful thing that's happening now in New York State is minimum wage has been raised to $15 an hour. So I feel that this is a very good thing that's happening now, is that minimum wage is being raised. And so I can't give away my vegetables. It's something that I wrestle with a lot is cost of how to price things. Because even though we're a very small farm, I compare my prices to a farm that's 100 acres. And it's bad for everybody when you lower your price. Everybody pays for those decisions. So that's something that needs to change. And if you say everybody, you mean possibly the people not valuing their food as part of it and the labor not getting a good hourly wage and the ecosystem, the bugs and bees connected to the farm, right? I was also thinking of just other farmers specifically when I said that, but what you said is very true. If I sell my potatoes on a small organic farm, we can get $2 a pound. When you go to buy them through a major purveyor, you can get a 50-pound bag for 25 cents a pound. And so it's very hard to compete with that. you know. But if I lower my price to 25 cents a pound, then everybody in my area who's a farmer is going to pay for that. If I keep my price higher, then it encourages other farmers to keep their prices higher as well. That's a race to the bottom, I think, giving your food away. And I just feel that we have devalued food. We pay much less than good food is worth in in the world. So yeah, that's something that needs to change. And it will change when people are paid more. Yeah, I've read that farmers are one of the professions that is very prone to depression and high levels of anxiety because there's pretty much no guarantee. It actually is a bit like gambling mixed with entrepreneurship connected to nature and nature's forces, which are immediately impacting everything you do. So it's a gambling with the market, the global market, and what's going on in nature that is now ever changing due to to climate change. And so one would think that the wholesalers or say some other bigger institution who has more data on what is required, what is being sold, would actually be the perfect place to decide we need this amount of this, this amount of this, this amount of this as an estimation, and then actually direct farmers to you know, this gives you a good chance of having your crop sold or actually guaranteeing farmers the money. So the process that you're describing, that's really nice because you do have the guarantee and you do have the money up front. You know, there's a farmer in Chicago. He is a small scale organic farmer. And I think in this country, like 25 acres is considered small, but he helped other small farmers in his area because he started a collective and he started to prepare these community supported agriculture boxes and also serve local restaurants. And he would ask these other farmers in his community, 
you specialize in tomatoes, you specialize in corn for fresh eating and flour. And now he's able to supply the community, not only with the vegetables that he grows, but also with chicken and eggs and dairy products and dried beans and this and that, because everybody got together. And instead of everyone growing the same thing and trying to sell it, they had a collective and they protected one another by working together as different arms of the same creature, so to speak. And that works. People taking things into their own hands and reaching out to one another and creating that type of business for themselves. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm wondering, you know, with your background as a chef, you have experienced how food waste is seen in the food service environment versus how it's perceived by farmers how would you compare them like how chefs tend to see food waste versus how much of an important topic that is for farmers i just think waste is a painful thing it's very similar i, I feel that restaurant owners and farmers actually have a lot in common because we're both taking a risk they're hoping that they fill their tables and they're buying as if they're going to sell a hundred salmon dishes with string beans, this and that. They have to buy, they have to have it. And if they don't sell it, then it gets wasted. And similarly to us, we plant. And if you don't have a model like a CSA and you've lined up your outlets and you're hoping that they buy what they say they're going to buy or buy as they have in the past, and then they don't. So I feel like it's really hard to judge. I have a lot of sympathy for the restaurant business because I understand that as a farmer and I think that it's very, very similar. But there's outlets for them too, like City Harvest in New York and places like that that pick up food that isn't purchased so people can eat it while it's still good. Yeah, or Too Good To Go as an app that addresses or offers reduced restaurant meals or leftovers from bakeries to people who just want to pick it up for a reduced price. I also think that's a fantastic model. Definitely. You know, what I find interesting is that any losses, like direct losses of food on the farm are oftentimes not really focused on. And I do think that should be included in a way. So if a whole field is planted and it's perfectly fine and just like right on the finish line towards harvesting it, there's an insect infestation and you need to plow it back into the soil, that's also waste of food depending on whether that could have been prevented in some kind of way. Agreed. Yeah, that is waste. And that's why I think that investing in the soil is very important because if there is an infestation or disease and you lose something, it is waste. And it's really important to look at our farming practices because those types of things can be avoided or reduced with better care of the soil. Mm. You're saying regenerative agriculture and caring for the health of the soil actually prevents the infestation, even though you're using less fungicides, herbicides, etc. Are you using any at all or are you completely not using any pesticides? No. This year I used a little bit of pyrethrin, which is an organic approved pesticide. It's made from a chrysanthemum extract. I used it once on a Mexican bean leaf beetle that was on my beans. It doesn't 
work. Because to me, my understanding is that a problem on the outside of a plant is actually a systemic imbalance. It all goes back to the soil. And so the more focus I put on correcting the imbalances in the soil, it could be a mineral deficiency, it could need more living biology, organic matter. It could be as simple as watering more efficiently. As I address those systemic imbalances, the problem goes away. And so I always look at that as my stewardship. And those wastes are something that I cause because of my lack of understanding how to grow something in a way that fortifies its immunity and its natural ability to fend off bugs and disease. Whenever I see that kind of a loss, and I have them still, but less and less, it always points right at myself. And if I soil test in the area where I've had a problem, let's just say early blight on tomatoes, there's always a systemic imbalance, a potassium deficiency, a calcium deficiency, boron. And you know, you don't need as much as you think. It's like when you soil test and you see these imbalances, they're not difficult to amend. So yeah, that I think is a waste. When things die under my care, I always look at myself as responsible for that event and the person who can make it better by growing better soil. Yeah, such a paradigm shift. And I always love to see how these topics are interconnected. So how food waste and the future of farming is connected. I'm right now reading a book called Food 5.0, where the author states his thesis is that to feed the world, we need monocultures, large scale monocultures. It's a bit of a precursor to the next season. But what do you think about that? Without being disrespectful, because I think that everybody has their reason for thinking the way that they do. I just don't believe that. There are ways of farming regeneratively that can be scaled up. I think it's Rodale Institute. They have developed a machine that crimps a cover crop so you can grow ryegrass. It's called a roller crimper. It pushes down the ryegrass and kills it so it lays there as mulch. And there are tools that slice into that and seed directly into it. They're not tilling. They're crimping the cover crop down. It protects the soil biology and they're seeding right into it. So I have to disagree and say that you can grow on a large scale with regenerative practices without a doubt. Research for that has been going on for a very long time. So it's totally scalable. As a matter of fact, I talked to a guy today who's from Argentina, and he was telling me that in Argentina, that's how they're growing soybeans and corn by planting right into the cover crop in large scale. So I have to disagree with that statement, you know, that you can't use regenerative practices to quote unquote, feed the world. We have enough food to feed right now. We just have to distribute it better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I always find that to be an interesting statement. It's there. I feel like the human element needs to be more connected and communicative and to share and distribute better. Yeah. And for listeners who have not heard about it or are not familiar with the term a cover crop, it's a crop that's used to fertilize the soil or give it some benefit, which isn't then sold in the end, but sort of a means to an end to help the soil, right? Correct. It keeps the soil biology alive. Because every plant has something called an exudate. It's a secretion that comes from their root system that 
keeps the soil biology alive. It feeds the microbes that help it utilize the minerals in the soil. So that's the job of any plant is to keep soil biology alive. From a tree to a blade of grass to a tomato plant, they're all doing the same thing. And that's keeping the life under the soil thriving because that's the plant's bread and butter, like literally. (laughs) So yeah, cover crop is amazing because you should never have exposed soil. Bare soil is very damaging to soil biology. So cover crops are used to keep the soil covered. This guy named Dan Kitteridge, who runs a place called the uh, Bionutrient Food Association, he's a wonderful man. And he's taught me so much. And once he said in a class, look around you, like nature doesn't do naked. And it's true. If we left nature to herself, leaves fall and cover the ground in the winter, there's always weeds or grass. And if you notice bare soil weeds come up so quickly. I mean, that's nature's way of keeping the soil alive. So that's the benefit to a cover crop and planting within it. And it's very exciting because it's totally possible to do for hundreds and hundreds of acres. And those types of practices, that's like a savings account. I feel that agricultural practices that just address the topical issue with a pesticide or an herbicide, that's like checking. It's like you're immediately going to withdraw on that account but it might not be there for you in the future. And all the other agricultural practices that build soil, that's a savings account. That's going to be there for you when you need it. And it's a worthwhile pursuit for sure. Yeah. Healthy soil means less food loss and less food waste. Absolutely. I mean, it is, everything's related. How exciting if a farmer could get the same yield off of 10 acres that he gets off of 100, and he wouldn't have to put in that type of effort for the same amount of yield off of less space. It's exciting. It is. And for myself, too, as you said earlier, when you asked me, is it loss or waste when a crop is decimated by bugs? I absolutely think of it as waste. And as we build soil and we practice no-till and keeping the soil covered and building soil biology, we have more usable product and we do have an audience for it. Now we've built an audience through this CSA that we have. And so we have an outlet. And if the plants survive and keep producing, it's more profitable for us. That's exciting for sure. If you would have 50 million and what businesses would you invest in? And I do notice that the people in the startup scene answer it very different than the academics. And I'm very interested in what uh, somebody from the actual agricultural farming sector would say to that. If I had $50 million, I think I would invest it in educational programs for children, like school programs where children can learn about the importance of growing their own food and be connected to nature that way. I would also invest it as a way of therapy for people in prison systems to grow food for other people. I feel that growing food is really therapeutic and so rewarding. Like if you don't know where your food comes from or how it's grown, how can you be compassionate or invested in it? And kids at the farm are, they naturally are attracted to getting dirty and they're thrilled to see the outcome of their planting a seed, you know? And I also feel that jobs where you're using your hands are just a way of feeling better. They can get you out of a depression. They can 
fill you with a feeling of self-worth by making a part of something that can uplift and sustain others. Regarding food sustainability or agriculture, what is an unusual opinion that you hold that many people would disagree with? That the plants speak to us and we should listen to them. That the plants are telling us what we need to do to make them healthier and grow them better. And so I feel that if you take ownership for what your plants are telling you and correct the problem systemically, then you can grow healthier food and have a higher yield and less waste and more profitability. And how can people reach out to you? People can email me at uh, the name of my business is Early Girl Farm, and they can reach me at earlygirlfarm at gmail.com. Patty, thank you very much for joining Red to Green. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was very thought provoking and I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. This is the end of our fourth season on food waste. As always, I wasn't alone in creating this. And I want to point out two people who have significantly shaped the season. Celeste Gupta has been with Red to Green ever since September 2020 and has been involved in the editing of pretty much all episodes since then. This is golden. Celeste, thank you so much for your help. Another big shout out to Francisca Erbe, who is helping by researching and sharing valuable insights and updates via social media. Thank you so, so much. To connect with these two lovely humans, check out our about page on our website, redtogreen.solutions. That's where you can see who's making this happen and find out more. Thank you for listening. I love to hear from you. Let's connect. Find me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. You can just look for Red to Green on LinkedIn and you will find me. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. <laughs>